I'm very grateful for the seasons of the church. I'm very grateful for Advent. Advent is a season in which we're reminded that we're people of light and hope. I'm even grateful for the season of Lent. In my spirit, I'm grateful for the spirit of Lent. It reminds me that we're people of repentance, which means we're people of change. There's a grace on us to become what we are not yet. Of course, we're all grateful for the season of Easter. Easter is the season in which we're reminded that we are people of new life, of new beginnings, of new possibilities. And even though it's short, I'm grateful for the ascension tide. Because I think we all need to be reminded that we are pilgrims, and like our father of faith Abraham, we are searching for a city not made with hands, but whose builder is maker is God. We're not of this world. This morning, I'm grateful for the season of Pentecost. The season of Pentecost launches us into what the church often refers to as ordinary time, and there's nothing as exciting as the word ordinary. But some have suggested that the idea behind ordinary time is that the normative life of the follower of Jesus Christ is the life of the power of the Spirit. And that the reason we will go through these next months walking with Jesus, hearing his voice, being his voice and his physical presence in the earth is that the Spirit of God is necessary and essential for that to even happen. I don't want to try to get to Advent in my own strength. I don't want to try to finish out this year in my talents or my abilities or my personality or my charm, which is tremendous. <laughs> Pentecost reminds all of us that we are people of the Spirit, that we are people of the kingdom, that we are people of supernatural power, and we are people of loving witness. This feast that we call Pentecost finds its origins in Leviticus 23, celebrating the 50 days after the Exodus in which on the mountain of Sinai or Horeb, God makes a covenant with Israel. It's, if you will, the beginning of national Israel on this mountain in the wilderness. And on a mountain in Jerusalem... The church is born 2,000 years ago as 120 wait for 10 days, the 10 days that transpire between Christ's ascension to the heavens and the coming or the descent of the Spirit into the earth. Happy birthday. Okay, that didn't work. I'll try this side of the room. Happy birthday. You just turned, uh, what is it, 2,000 almost years old. You look great for being almost 2,000. Today is the day we celebrate the birth of the church, the birth of this ecclesia, this community that is called out, but yet still sent into the world. I wonder what it would be like to wait for 10 days in that upper room. You talk about a long service. I'm looking at the clock right now. Okay. I got a lot of time. Oh my goodness, 10 days. Don't you find it interesting that the resurrected Jesus appeared to 500 people at once? I would be convinced. I'd like to think I would be convinced 
If I saw the resurrected Jesus preach, I'd like to think that I would be on board. Whatever he wants, he'll get it. He rose from the dead. Anybody else with me like thinking I'd be convinced at that point? What's interesting about the story is you find 500 people hear him preach, but only 120 are interested in doing what he said. 380 said, I don't think I want to do that. It gives every preacher hope. (laughs) If I can just get a smidgen of you on board this morning, I'm doing Jesus kind of work. You know what I'm saying? So 500, 380 of them are like, yeah, no. 120 say, okay, we'll wait. And I wonder, you're waiting all of day one. I mean, let's use an imagination this morning. I mean, I'm fighting to get you out of here in 57 minutes. Imagine we're here and it's nine o'clock at night and we don't have a script and we don't have sanctuary kids and we don't have bouncy houses and we don't have espresso. We don't have musicians. We don't have PA. We don't have padding and pews. Imagine when it gets to be about 11.30 at night. Somebody's thinking, I'm going home. Day four, five, seven. Oh, my goodness. And I have to tell you, I would love to see that power in the body of Christ today. I would love to see that sudden movement of the Spirit that takes us so by surprise. We could have never scripted it. That moment where we become undone. But I just don't know if I'm ready to stay for 10 days. I wonder if you'd bow your heads this morning. I'm not, I just want to do something with eyes closed, just sort of a little bit of a meditative thing here. Nothing strange will happen, I promise. And just ask yourself this question. What could it look like? Forget any bad experiences you've had in church. Forget all of the abuses. Forget all of the manipulation. Forget all of the emotionalism, what could it look like if the Spirit fell in this room among us this morning? How would you feel physically? How would you respond emotionally? How free would you be to engage that? Father, this morning, as we come to the Scriptures, I'm asking for you to have mercy on all of us by helping us think about your Spirit, be open to your Spirit in ways that maybe we haven't been in the past. I pray that we'd have a a courage that comes from you, a trust, a hope, as we heard the Apostle say, that's supernatural. It's, it's not hype. It's not manipulative. It's, it's genuine. It's from the throne of heaven. It's from your heart to ours. Help us this morning 
we ask for the glory of Jesus' name. Amen. There's a story in the book of Ezekiel that is given to the church to read on Pentecost Sunday, most Sundays. Ezekiel is a prophet among prophets. He is, if there's a prophet who may have experimented with drugs, I'm thinking it would be Ezekiel. I could be wrong on that one. But if you've tried to read and understand Ezekiel, you know what I'm talking about. Wave, so I'm not the only person. If you've read, tried to read Ezekiel, you get like four chapters in, you're like, okay, I'm out. I can't, this is just out there. Ezekiel is intense, to say the least. He does strange things. He says stranger things. This prophet brings us a story that is delivered to Israel in the midst of her exile. So exile is this painful 70-year period when a group of people who are convinced that God being with them is proven by their geography. If we live and inhabit this geographical space, it's proof that God is for us, that God is with us, that God is pleased with us. And because God was for them, but he wasn't exactly happy with their idolatry and their adultery, he took them out of that land and move them to Babylon. Babylon being the most powerful empire by Jewish standards, they should not have been as wealthy as they were. They shouldn't have been as powerful as they were because they didn't acknowledge the one true God. And yet here they are, pagans, Gentiles, godless idolaters, ripping the people of God, the apple of God's eye is how they referred to themselves, ripping them out of this promised land, dragging them, the best of them, their intellectuals, their artists, their creators, dragging them off to Babylon. They are destitute, they are upset, they are angry. And in the midst of that setting, we find our Old Testament text this morning, Ezekiel chapter 37, starting at the first verse. He says, the hand of the Lord came upon me And he brought me out, and this is, I think, why we read it on Pentecost. He brought me out by the Spirit of the Lord, and he set me down in the middle of a valley. Now, we have to remember here, prophets are always using poetic metaphor. They're always using this sort of liturgy. He's in the midst of a a trance, if you will, right now. And he's in the middle of a valley. It was full of bones. He led me all around them up close and personal. And look at this. There were very many bones lying in the valley, and they were very dry. He said to me, mortal, can these bones live? I answered, O Lord God, you know. Then he said to me, prophesy to these bones. Again, the drugs come to mind in this moment like this. They don't have cartilage. They don't have ears prophesy to these bones and say to them, O dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God to these bones, I will cause breath to enter you and you shall live. I will lay sinews on you and will cause flesh to come upon you and cover you with skin and put breath in you, and you shall live, and you shall know that I am the Lord. So I prophesied as I had been commanded. And as I prophesied, suddenly, this reminds us of Acts 2, suddenly there was a noise. Remember Acts 2? And suddenly there was a sound as of a mighty rushing wind. Suddenly 
There was a noise, a rattling, and the bones came together, bone to its bone. I looked, and there were sinews on them, and flesh had come upon them, and skin had covered them, but there was no breath in them. Then he said to me, prophesy to the breath, prophesy mortal and say to the breath, thus says the Lord God, come from the four winds, O breath, and breathe upon these slain. Interesting, not dead, slain. That they may live. I prophesied as he commanded me. And the breath came into them and they lived and stood on their feet a vast multitude or better translation here would be a great army. Then he said to me, mortal, these bones are the whole house of Israel. They say, our bones are dried up and our hope is lost. We are cut off completely. Therefore prophesy and say to them, thus says the Lord God, I'm going to open your graves and bring you up from your graves. O my people, and I will bring you back to the land of Israel, and you shall know that I am the Lord when I open your graves and bring you up from your graves, O my people. I will put my spirit within you, and you shall live, and I will place you on your own soil. Then you shall know that I, the Lord, have spoken and will act, says the Lord. This is the word of the Lord dry bones. There's something incredibly powerful, beneficial, and fruitful about coming to the end of ourselves. You'll notice that it says there were very many. This is a quantity issue. There's a lot of dry bones. Has anybody come upon a corpse in your life? No, could you raise a hand? If a, okay, so there's a small group, not most of us, has anybody come upon a skeleton, a, co a corpse that there's just nothing left on it? Okay, we got an even smaller number. So this is not common, am I right? Not in Oklahoma even, right? This is not, we didn't do, well, New York is probably where all the bodies are for that matter, for all I know. <laughs> they were probably all up in the, anyway, forget it. That's a bad place to go. This idea of not just coming upon a dead person, but coming upon a, a, a a skeletal remain, and it's not just a, a skeleton, it's many, many bones. So this is the quantity of the destruction, the quantity of the death is high. But then he describes the bones as being not just very many, but being very dry. So this is now the quality of the bones. So this is to say, not only are they dead, they're super dead. If Bishop Ed was here, he would say they're dead plus right? So the point here, the, the prophetic imagery is this is not, there's not a chance here. There's not like one person where if I do CPR really good, I can bring them back. This is the end of ourselves. And the fact is, I think we have these sort of epic moments where we have like these major ends of ourselves 
and we go through a major health crisis, a major financial crisis, we have a relational crisis, and we're in despair, and we don't know what to do. But I also think we have these sort of mini valleys of dry bones. And that's why I'm grateful for Pentecost, because I think we regularly need to be reminded that getting to the end of ourselves is not necessarily a bad thing. Getting to the end of ourselves is filled with great potential. Now, as I said, this is not just like uh, everybody had a terrible disease and died and just withered away in the sun. These people, it says, were slain in verse 9. So I don't know if you've ever felt like you were under attack, if you ever felt like life was beating you down, if you ever felt like... uh, Everything that could be against you is against you, and it's not just the typical hardship of life, but it feels like the universe is conspiring against you sometimes. These, these people have been slain. These people are not just have lost their strength. They've, somebody has intentionally acted upon them. This bones metaphor is explained in verse 11, if you want to look back on it. God says to Ezekiel, he says, these bones are the whole house of Israel, my chosen people, the people I promised to be faithful to, the people of my covenant, the people on or at Mount Sinai, those people. Can we just stop there for a minute and then just be sobered by this? God's people are the valley of dry bones. I don't know if that bothers anybody besides me, but it bothers me. I should have put like, Chris Green is so good at putting like disclaimers at the front of the message. Like the front part is not going to be pleasant. That's, that's the disclaimer a little bit late. This is heavy duty. This is God's people are being represented by very many, very dry bones in the middle of a valley. And when God goes on to explain this, He says something interesting. They say, who says? Israel says. Israel says, our bones are dried up. But look at this. Our hope is lost. There are some times when I read a text, I get very curious to just say, I wonder what these words mean in Hebrew or Greek or original languages. And Hebrew in particular is just such a colorful metaphorical language. And this word for hope is a word for a rope or a cord rope or a cord. And it's this idea that you may be in a bad place, but there's something you're holding on to that's in another place that you think is going to get you there. Okay? So they're saying, we've got this cord, and we're holding on to it in the midst of our exile. We think we're going to get out of it. And then the rope is gone. The actually word there for loss is wandered off like a sheep. Our rope found, got feet and walked away. Anybody ever see uh, Indiana Jones, the first one, Raiders of the Lost Ark? Okay, if you haven't, that's your homework assignment for this week. Indiana Jones, Raiders of the Lost Ark. There's a famous scene at the beginning of the movie where he goes to get this small golden idol, and when he's, he gets the idol off of the pedestal, the whole temple starts to collapse in on itself. Remember this? And he's running out. Before the great big, well, I'm not even going to say that, because if you haven't seen it, I'll ruin it. But let me ruin this much for you. You deserve to let me ruin this if you haven't seen the movie, Okay. <laughs> 
there's this scene where his, his companion and, and, and Indy are trying to get out of this temple and they have to jump this, this span. And so he uses his whip, remember? And he throws the whip and the one guy swings over and he's like, I've got the whip, you've got the idol. Give me the idol, I'll give you the whip. And Indy throws him the idol and he just drops the whip. This is what happens to Israel. <laughs> They're standing in a temple that's crashing down around them, and God dropped the whip. <laughs> From their perspective, that's what they feel like. God, you've strung me out here. I think there are times, not every time, but there are some times where God lets us get to the end of ourselves because he doesn't want to make a better version of the old you. He wants to raise up an entirely new you. And as long as he keeps propping up and enabling our fear, our entitlements, our laziness, our selfishness, we'll never live the flourishing, abundant life he has for us. And if the world is crashing down around you and it feels like the rope got legs and ran away, I came with a message of hope for you this morning. The message of hope is that God's Spirit shows up on breathless corpses. You see, the question, mortal, can these bones live, is asked here. And wisely, Ezekiel says, Oh Lord, you know. I love that line and I've now used it several times in my personal life. If I ever feel God asking a question, I'm like, I think you know the answer to that question, God. Like, turn it back on God. That's what Ezekiel does. But there's some wisdom here because think about it. If, if you were asked that question rationally and I brought you to a skeleton, I say, could this skeleton live? All of us, apart from church mode, would say no. We'd all say no, okay? But to say no in that instance is pure rationalism, Right? You look at a skeleton, you say, it can't live. That's rational. Rationalism is a blight in the church. If we feel like it doesn't make sense and it can't be explained, and we're scared of it, or we're concerned about it, or we avoid it, there's nothing rational about the story that we read this morning in the same way that there's nothing rational about Acts 2. There's nothing rational about Jesus coming up out of the grave. So he doesn't want to say no, but here's the problem. If he says yes, it's a little bit presumptuous. Because then God's like, okay, well, how's that going to happen? <laughs> he manages to say in humble self-awareness, God, you know. Oh, that I could be like the prophet. I'm so quick with a yes or a no. So many times I've been so sure <laughs> this is exactly how God works. Oh, I know. Can we all have grace this morning? This sort of grace of self-awareness of our own limitations. This is beautiful what the prophet does. But there's another grace that we hear, see here of awareness, and that's Israel's grace. Because Israel says of herself, our hope is lost. We are like dry bones. And I wonder, do we have the capacity or the ability to see ourselves that way? 
You see, sometimes I think we see ourselves as either too good, we've got, we Photoshop ourselves in our own minds, hello, or we see ourselves as so bad that we fill ourselves with despair. And I think there's a third way. I don't have to be in denial about what's wrong with me, but I also don't have to be in despair about what's wrong with me. I think there is a grace to be aware of who I am. And if you're in a season this morning that feels like a dry bone season, if you're in a season this morning that feels like a valley season and the quantity and the quality of the problem is overwhelming, I think there can be a grace on our lives to not walk out of here denying the problem. Oh, everything's great, everything's fine. Have you been around those Christians? They're wonderful, aren't they? I love the blessed and highly favored line. That's my favorite line. Bankrupt, divorce court, kids are in the hospital. How are you doing? Blessed and highly favored. You're a liar. Stop. Don't talk that way, right? There's, there, we don't want to go out of here denying our problems this morning. But we also don't want to go out of here in despair. Oh, my life is so bad and it's horrible. Because then why, why all the Jesus stuff? But if there's a grace on us to just simply be aware of what is really there, and at the same time, confidence that God knows what's possible. God knows what's possible in the midst of our dryness. God knows what's possible in the midst of our brokenness. If I can't say that confidently, what can I say? Right? If I can't say, listen, I don't, too many preachers, and I say this as having done this, have been guilty of oversimplifying the situations of people sitting in pews, oversimplifying the complexity of problems, thinking that somehow by power of our personality and how hard we push on your head that we're going to make it go away. And how's that working for everybody? Not good, not good. But at the same time, if I don't believe that God knows whether or not these bones can live, if I can't say that much with confidence, I'm in the wrong line of work. I shouldn't have to trick you into believing that God knows. <laughs> no, I came to tell you this morning, God knows whether or not your bones can live. God knows that no matter how big the problem is, no matter how bad the problem is, God knows what can come of it. This is an incredible grace that I pray for all of us this morning. A grace on our lives to not be in denial about who we are, to own our brokenness in faithful and appropriate ways, not despairing ways, not woeful ways. I think there's a grace that reveals this whole picture of who we are, but it's in the context of who God is. Can I say that again? The grace I'm talking about, it frees us to be honest and revealing the whole picture of who we are, but it's always in the context of who God is. I'm dry bones, he's a raiser of the dead. I'm broken, he's a healer. I'm ignorant, he is wisdom. All of these, this, I don't have to fear that revelation of who I am because of who God is. And I feel like religion somehow empowers profound ignorance among us. Because how many of us have been tricked into thinking that we, we have to somehow put on this facade of competence and togetherness? 
There's a great story. Uh, it gets attributed to different characters, but the one that I have is Pope Innocent III, and he's in his tremendous study office area. And the story is that Thomas Aquinas, the great doctor and scholar of the church, comes into Pope Innocent's area, and Pope Innocent is sitting at a large banquet table counting gold coins. And of course, this is the medieval Roman Catholic Church, not exactly a highlight of, of that time for that communion. And Pope Innocent, sensing the presence of Aquinas, looks up and then kind of looks back down to his coins and he says, no longer can the church say, silver and gold, have I none. And Thomas Aquinas, without missing a beat, says, and no longer can she say, rise up and walk. That's the awareness I'm talking about. That's the presence I'm talking about. And I'm concerned for myself first. And I, I'm thinking if it's true of me, there's probably somebody in the room with me. I'm concerned that, and, I, and if you have worked or served in ministry professionally, I think this is a deep problem. So those of you who like you do, if you, well, first of all, if you work at another church, you shouldn't be here this morning. So let's get that out of the way. <laughs> but if you, let's say you do power church work or something like that, here's the problem. I think, here's what the Holy Spirit showed me about me. I'll toss it out there, trusting you won't make fun of me, and you can, maybe we can compare notes. You'll notice that this work that God does in the valley takes place in two stages, Right? The first stage is the bone-rattling stage. The first stage is when he says prophesy to the bones and he hears this clacking and this clamoring and then next thing you know, there's sinew. Next thing you know, there's skin. And then God calls for the prophet to prophesy again. And what does he say? He says prophesy now to the breath. Remember that? And this harkens back to Genesis chapter 2, where we have the sort of second retelling of creation in a very intimate way, where we find Adam and Eve being created. And what happens is God creates, he says he forms man out of the dust of the earth. That's like the clattering of the bones. And then what does it say? And then God breathed into Adam and he became a living soul. And the same thing happens in this story of new creation where you have this sort of two-phase creation where the bones are brought together and they're formed into now what are bodies, but there's no breath in them. And this is where the Holy Spirit grabbed me by both shoulders and pinned me to the back of my chair. And he said, Mark, it's not enough for you to have it together. You have to have breath. And when you work for the church, you feel like your job is to have it together. Get your bones together, get your skin on, and get back in the game. And friends, that is not a person, it's a mannequin. I don't want to be a mannequin. I don't want to be posable. I want to be alive. I want to have breath in me. And here's what God said to me, because this is sort of our interaction as I prepared this sermon for us. I said, God, I want to have breath in me. He said, you can't have my breath in you until you're breathless. He may have said a joke about me being full of hot air, but that's for a different time. <laughs> God said, Mark, I cannot fill you with breath 
until you exhale. I can't fill you with my spirit until you're willing to let go of what you're holding onto in your lungs. Our breathlessness creates the space for God's breath in us. So if you feel like you're out of breath, if you feel like the bones are many and very dry, this is the best place to be on Pentecost Sunday to pray that once again a suddenly moment can happen. Let's bow our heads together. With your heads bowed, I just want to tell you this quick story. It's shared by Cyril of Jerusalem. He says, they partook of fire, not of burning, but of saving fire. This is a fire that consumes the thorns of sins, but it gives luster to the soul. This is now coming upon you also in order to strip away and consume your sins which are like thorns and to brighten yet more that precious possession of your souls and to give you grace the same that was given to the apostles. The one thing that concerns me is that what's necessary for the life of the church is the life of the Spirit. What's necessary for the church to be faithful to her mission is an openness to the Spirit. And if there's one thing the church has abused, and if there's one thing that we're all skittish about, it's this Spirit talk and this Spirit strangeness. And are you drunk? Are you crazy? And what happens is we get ourselves into a safe place, but not a Spirit place. And I am not here this morning to impose anything. I'm not here to try and do anything other than to simply ask you a question. Do you trust God enough to take risks with his spirit? I think that's where we breathe out. I want to pray for you this morning. I want to pray for freedom. Freedom from fear. Freedom from a past that may have been hurtful to you. Freedom to trust that God does know. And I want to pray for all of us. We hear a little rattling of some bones this morning. Father, I do feel like your prophet this morning and that I feel I, I don't know what to say. There are so many people in this room with differing experiences different stories, and I don't know them all, but you know them all. I pray this morning on this day of Pentecost that right now 
your spirit would fall on us. Have your way. Give us radical trust this morning to get over our hang-ups, to get over our fears. Give us radical trust. Let sanctuary truly be a sanctuary of the Spirit of God. Let this not just be a place where the wounded soul can come and find safety, but let this be a place where the Spirit of God is demonstrated in power and in love. God, all I know is to ask you, don't let us go through this week without being bothered by your Spirit. We ask this through Christ our Lord. Amen.